Bonsoir. Hey, come on. Come on. <laughs> Bonsoir. Thank you very much, uh, Jay. He says he wants to be like me. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not saying. I'm just saying, you know, uh, you have a lot to look forward to. I have a lot of stuff for you, so not a long preamble. I just want to get into it tonight. But I do want to thank you for inviting me to participate, especially to partner with uh, Keith. I have used a lot of his music in my television work. He's been the opening music for several TV shows that I've produced. I assure you that I got permission, Keith, even if you don't remember it. He once gave me permission on, a, on the back of an envelope. I remember going out to Tennessee and seeing him there. And he put it on the back. And I talked to your dad, too, I remember saying. And his dad said to me, don't ask him for any money. He's rich. So, I've, so you know, I've, I've kind of uh, continued with that idea. But uh, uh, all kidding aside, it is a great honor to, uh, to share a program uh, with, uh, with Keith. And, uh, and he made me sing. And the idea, if you're a speaker, you know, usually you try to rest your voice, you know, before you get up and speak. But no, I was singing out and enjoying it. Uh, my prayer, <clears throat> my prayer um, is that the end result of this weekend here will not simply be that we have more information about worship, but that our own experience of worship will be broadened, will be enhanced and changed to the glory of God in our own personal edification, as well as the building up of the church. I start with a question. Can anybody here remember where the last Summer Olympics were held? Anybody? 2016. Yeah, Rio. Very good. Rio. You're wondering why is he talking about the Olympics? I have another question. Have you ever wondered what the Olympics are about? Because when you cut through the hype and the marketing, as well as the politics, the entire experience and exercise is about competition. The Olympic Games is motivated by and lives off of competition. Countries compete for the chance to host the best, the most elaborate show. Athletes sacrifice their lives to compete with one another to become the best in the world in a moment of time. The idea of fostering brotherhood and openness and friendship are all side items to the true spirit of the Olympics, which is competition on a worldwide scale. So in a broad sense, you could say that the nature of sport is competition. You play to win. Now, I'm saying this because in each area of endeavor, there is an essential nature or core idea that explains and makes sense of the activities surrounding it. That's why great coaches, for example, never forget that the sport is about competition. It's not about fame or money or politics. They know that the core issue, competition, and never let their players get away from this idea. 
Little kids, they can play for fun. They can play for the love of the game. They can play to build character. But professionals, especially successful professionals, know that it's about competing and it's about winning. So knowing the essential nature of something is important if you are to be successful at it. That's an important concept and one upon which I'm going to build this lesson tonight. For example, the essential nature of school is education. When I worked at, uh, okay, this thing isn't working. All right. Huh? Yeah. Higher? Bill? Is it on? Yes, it is on. I don't know. I was handed it. All right. Is that me or is that back there? Yeah, you wouldn't say if it was you. (laughs) All right, so let's see what side. Okay, so... Knowing the essential nature of something is important if you're going to be good at it. For example, the essential, the essential nature of school, as I said, is education. When I, same thing. Okay, Bill, you're not going to have a deal, okay? I'm going to say next slide and you're going to do that for me. Thank you. Thank you. All right. When I worked at Oklahoma Christian um, as dean of students, I witnessed so many people fail because they hadn't grasped this basic core idea. They joined, you know, the kids would show up and they would join the social service clubs. They would sign up for intramural sports. They rejoiced in the fact that there were between 800 at the time, 800 and 1,200 single women running around campus. They dated, they played video games in the dorms till 4 a.m., they hung out at the lounge, and oh yeah, they went to class as an afterthought. And then the five-week grades were sent home to parents, and little Junior over here had two C's, one D, an F, and an incomplete grade because assignments were not turned in. This is when it began to dawn on students that despite all the extracurricular activities taking up their time, college was about getting a structured education. Nobody got a diploma for ping pong. (laughs) Those who succeeded at OC were those who understood the essential nature of that place and gave themselves over to it. And the essential nature of OC was education. I mean, I could go on and on with other examples. The essential nature of business is profit. No profit, no business. It's not about titles or offices or networking or advertising or bookkeeping. All these things are parts of business. They support the basic or core element of business, which is profit. Sometimes I'm with someone and we see some shabby looking store or restaurant and the person with me will say, man, why are they still open? What a dump. And my answer is always the same. They're open because they are turning a profit. That's why they're open. 
Now, the only institution that stays open when it's not making a profit is? Yeah, government. Very good. (laughs) Next slide. Okay, so then following this line of thinking, I suggest to you that the essential nature of worship is communication. Communication with God. From the first elementary examples of people worshiping God in Genesis to the exalted images given to us by John in the book of Revelation, worship has had one common thread, the effort man makes to communicate with God in some way. This is evident from observing the actions and words used when people in the Bible are worshiping. Whether it was bowing down or offering sacrifice or expressing prayers or playing instruments in the Old Testament or singing hymns in the New Testament or eating the Passover or sharing the communion, people were not doing these things for themselves or for other believers. This was understood. The underlying reason for all of these things and more was that God was listening. God was watching God was somehow receiving the message of faith and love and appreciation and repentance and, 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 and need from those trying to communicate it to him from below here on earth. Next slide. What's interesting about this is that communication with God is the essential nature of every type of worship, not just Judeo-Christian worship. I mean, the Muslim pilgrims going to Mecca want to communicate with Allah that their faith is sincere. The Hindus who wash in the Ganges do this right to connect with Brahma, the first god of the Hindu trinity and creator of the universe. Native Americans in the United States and First Nation peoples here use sweat lodges to help them be more attuned to the spirits. Zoroastrians of ancient times lit fires to honor their god Zoroaster. Now, I'm not saying that all of these methods are effective and even acceptable to the God of creation, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm simply saying that the essential nature of worship is communication. Man, mankind, trying to communicate in some manner with the divine. This is the basic premise, the core idea that informs and gives meaning to the other activities surrounding worship. Thankfully, we have the revelation of God through Christ and his word to teach us about all things, including how we truly communicate with God in spirit and truth. Next slide. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, Paul writes, For this reason also since the day we heard, I think I'll read it over here, we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Next slide. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints 
of light. One more passage. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So listen to what he's saying. In Christ, we gain the ability, the wisdom, and the knowledge to not only live in a way to please God, but also to worship or to communicate with him as well. This is part of the inheritance that we receive in Christ. True communication with the living God. That's one of the gifts that we receive. Now, why is this important? I've spent a good portion of time setting up this basic premise that the essential nature of worship is communication. Why is this so important? Well, it's important because not knowing or forgetting or not prioritizing this core idea leads us into worship that is not in spirit and in truth. It's like coaches who forget about the essence of competition or business people who neglect the bottom line of profitability. Churches who ignore the fact that worship is basically about communication. These churches lose the benefit of worship which is transcendence, which is transcendence, the topic of my third lesson in this series. Churches make one of two basic mistakes when it comes to public worship. Basic mistake number one. Next slide. They make the means the end. In other words, the idea of communication is lost or subverted by the methods of communication. For example, it's like buying an expensive computer with lots of software and all kinds of gadgets, but not bothering to hook it up to the internet. I mean, it's great, it's impressive as a computer, but it can't communicate with anyone else except the, the owner. Churches who do this, when so much, excuse me, I should say, churches do this when so much attention and cost is focused on the place of worship the equipment to worship, the order of worship, the method of worship, but no effort to examine if there's some sort of communication with God that is happening through all of this worship business. We think that if we get the method right, then the communication takes place. But having the right method is only part of what is required to actually communicate with God. For example, it's like saying that to compete in football, you have to make sure every player has his name on his jersey and knows and follows the rules of the game. I mean, having the equipment and knowing the rules enables you to play, but you need more than that to be competitive, to win. In the same way, knowing the method and following the rules qualifies as worship, but if it doesn't guarantee that you actually communicate with God and receive the true blessings as a result. I'll talk about some other things necessary to actually worship in the next lessons. But I just wanted to point out mistake number one that many make, and that is they make the means the end. Mistake number two, next slide. We make up our own methods. In his book, Christianity's Dangerous Idea, author Alistair McGrath states that Pentecostalism accounts for most of the growth in Christianity in the last 50 years. 
His research shows that the Pentecostal movement is larger than all other evangelical groups put together, and that includes Restoration Churches as well. In worldwide Christianity, there's Catholicism, then Pentecostalism, and then everybody else. Now, what's really interesting in McGrath's book, and by the way, he's a professor of historical theology at Cambridge University, What's really interesting about his theory is why this is so, why they're so big, why there's so much growth. He says that unlike other groups who have a religious framework to function within, the Pentecostals have none. For example, Catholics. All right. I grew up as a Catholic. I know something about that religion. Catholics, for example, have church history. They have church law. They have the cardinal's vote. They have the the pope's encyclicals, as well as the Bible, to guide and restrict or permit what they will or will not do in public worship. We, in the churches of Christ, use only the Bible and have a framework of rules to guide our interpretation, as well as widely accepted traditional teachings that permit or restrict our actions. Mainly, you know, the use of instruments and so on and so forth. Pentecostals, on the other hand, have none of these. Their teachings are fluid and take into consideration the needs and circumstances of the moment, especially when it comes to worship. I mention this because they are an excellent example of ones who make up their own methods and rules about worship. The polar opposite of those whose worship is all about rules. For Pentecostals, whatever it takes to make the worship dynamic, emotional, meaningful, entertaining, spiritual, whatever it takes is okay because nothing is holding them back as far as method is concerned. The problem, of course, is that they define communication with God based on their methods not on the results authenticated by the Bible. You see the difference? It's like a hockey team judging their success by the color of their uniforms and the quality of the pregame show and not the final score. Their mistake, I believe, is that they judge the effectiveness of worship by the way that they feel about the worship itself rather than how the worship affects how they feel about God. In the churches of Christ, there's a desire to go this way and justify the means for the end as well. Many congregations, you know, sensing that they are not getting the benefits of worship, not accomplishing the core goal of worship, which is communication, are beginning to tinker with methods and the rules thinking that this will make a difference somehow. So they add instruments, and they add drama and audiovisual aids and worship teams, or they include women in leadership roles or experiment with charismatic ideas like clapping or tongue-speaking, even mimicking the lingo of prophecy and special visions. And it's normal that this is what they would do or try, since they believe that the method produces the results. So why not change the method? Of course, others react to these changes, especially unbiblical changes, 
and the debate centers on the methods, while nothing really changes except more division and less communication among ourselves and with God. Well, we'll talk more about the rules and the methods in the next lesson, but for now, let's review the divine requirements for communication with God. If communication with God is the core essential matter when it comes to public worship, well then, what are the requirements to communicate with God? What does it really require aside from methods? Well, number one, next slide. Number one, communication with God requires that we realize that communication with God must exist personally before it can exist corporately. Jesus trained his apostles in private prayer for three years before they began actually worshiping corporately as a church after his resurrection. If a congregation's worship is not effective, it's because the individuals in the church don't know how to worship God privately. And if the leaders in the church do not have an active, effective, ongoing private communication with God, there's not much chance that the church will have it either when it gathers for public worship. If a person doesn't know how to talk to God and how to communicate to God uh, with God by himself, uh, what difference does it make if you take 300 of those people or 3,000 of those people and put them together in a room? They're not going to know how to do it any, any better as a group if they don't know how to do it privately. Worship in spirit and truth doesn't begin with new songbooks. It begins with the patient teaching of every member to have a new and open heart to God in personal worship. That's the starting point. This is why Peter in Acts 6 refused to relinquish his ministry of prayer for the work of food distribution. As a true leader, he was keeping his eye on the core elements of an effective church, worship and teaching of God's word. Communication with God also requires, next slide, recognition of God's presence in worship. I appreciate Keith's energy when he is uh, leading uh, the church in worship and his sensitive understanding of the idea that we are worshiping Almighty God. We're not just, quote, improving our songs. We're improving ourselves. Why? Because God is with us. People who are bored at worship are bored because they fail to recognize God's presence. People who check their text messages daydream, visit with their neighbor, or are otherwise distracted, fail to sing, fail to say amen. They do all of these things because their faith in his true presence is weak. You know, God realizes that the singing may be subpar, and the preacher a little monotonous, and the babies are fussing. After all, he sees and hears what we see and hear. But he is present in Christ because the church has gathered in his name. We should at least give the same attention that he does. 
He is present not based on our performance of worship, but rather on his promise to be with us whenever two or three are gathered in his name. Matthew 18, 20. We cannot truly communicate with God unless we first acknowledge and respect the fact that he is really with us according to his promise. Communication with God also requires, next slide, a sense of ourselves. A sense of ourselves. I know that worship is supposed to be focused on God, but nothing really focuses our minds on God like getting a true sense of ourselves first. Paul, the apostle, uh, his most fervent cry, his sincerest prayer, his clearest vision and communication with God is when he declared in Romans 7, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in Romans 8, 1, when he says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a man who knew himself. There is a man who knew what he was about. Every man who comes face to face with God, the ultimate communication and worship. Every person who has had that experience has experienced this sense of self. Isaiah, for example, who was eloquent in words and a counselor to kings, was only aware of his unclean and unworthy lips and words when caught up in the spirit before God. Isaiah 6, verse 5. And John, the faithful apostle who had seen Jesus resurrected, still fell to the ground as a dead man when he faced the Lord in his heavenly state. Revelation 1, verse 17. Here's my point. The more we see ourselves for who and what we really are, the more the Lord opens our eyes to his own glory and the chasm of righteousness and glory that lies between us. It is only when we see this that we are enabled to experience awe and thanksgiving and relief and joy because then we can see and value the gift that is ours in the cross of Christ and, and the privilege to worship Almighty we're not doing him a favor. You know, I've, 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 I've tried to uh, discipline myself uh, not to say to members when they're leaving on a Sunday, thanks for coming. Because in doing so, I dishonor God. What do you mean, thanks for coming? We should be the ones saying to God, thank you for allowing us to come into your presence, Lord. That's the thanksgiving that we need to be, that we need to be giving. This was the problem with the Pharisees. They were so full of their own self-righteousness that they couldn't see their true condition and need and therefore, they couldn't see or communicate with Jesus and what he said and what he did. Nothing improves our worship, our communication with God, like a sober and ruthless self-examination. 
This reveals our need and our need opens the eyes of our heart. And when the eyes of our heart are open, we can see God and thus communicate with him more effectively. And then finally, in order to communicate with God, next slide, we need to know the language of communication with God. Everything has a language peculiar to itself. Sports, you know, a hat trick, a touchdown. Business, profit and loss statement. Computers, software, my hard, my, my hard drive crashed. I remember somebody saying that to me 30 years ago. I didn't know what he was talking about. My hard drive crashed. But we all know what that means, right? We all know how painful that is, don't we? Well, worship has its own language as well. And it's not cultural. It's not English or French. It's spiritual. The spiritual language of worship includes the following types of communication with God. And in order to demonstrate this, I want to read a passage from Isaiah. Next slide. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to explain to you and show you the language of communication with God that uh, Nehemiah used in his prayer. So read together. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now. Day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. I think that's it, right? To 11. Okay. We're familiar with this. Nehemiah, the the walls around Jerusalem have been uh, uh, torn down. People from Jerusalem come to him and tell him this and and ask him to go to the king and and to get help to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, of course, was frightened because to to enter the king and to make a a request without having been invited uh, could lead to his death. And so this is the prayer he makes here upon hearing this news and preparing himself to go see the king. Now, I want you to uh, uh, note here and examine Nehemiah's prayer as we close out this session in order to see the type of prayer languages that he uses. First of all, he uses the language of praise in verse 4 and 5. A short review of some of the good things of God. 
Then he uses language of supplication in verse 6. My prayer uh, for you and for someone else is a, a prayer of supplication. He's making a specific request on behalf of someone else. And sometimes, you know, that prayer is, uh, Dear Lord in heaven, I thank you so much for this day. And, and so, Lord, I, I, I ask if you would give me this and you would, you know, that sometimes that's our, our, our prayer of supplication. But sometimes it's a little different. I remember uh, my daughter and a friend of hers uh, went to Hawaii and babysat this couple's children while they enjoyed the trip. And for their trouble, they got a free ride, you know, a free trip to Hawaii and all. It was wonderful. So she called me and she says, Daddy, she's like 16. And she says, Dad, she said, tomorrow we're going on a helicopter ride around the bay in Hawaii, me and, 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 uh, and uh, my friend. Uh, and I, oh, well, wonderful. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're going to do that. And uh, uh, Lise, my wife, and I uh, were traveling at the time uh, between California and, uh, and, uh, and Oklahoma. And so we're in the hotel that the next morning, and Lise is, you know, paying off the bill, and I'm loading the luggage, and I'm inside the car, and I turn on the radio, and the radio said uh, two teenage girls were killed in a helicopter crash in Hawaii this morning. <laughs> and I made a prayer of supplication. And my prayer of supplication was, Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And we were in the middle of nowhere, nobody we could call. We had to get in the car. I told Lise what had happened. She wept. We prayed. About two hours later, one of the elders at the church called me because his daughter, Carrie, was with my daughter, Emily. And he just called and said, Mike, yes. Oh, thank God they're okay. It was two girls, two teenage girls from Texas on the helicopter that Emily and Carrie were on, but they were on the next ride. Our girls had the ride, and then they took on two other girls in the family, and that's the one who was killed. I don't want the example that I'm giving you to overwhelm the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that supplication isn't always a polite request. Sometimes all you can say is, oh God, oh God. Nehemiah used the language of confession. He acknowledged and reviewed the sins that he had made. His prayer included language of confirmation, reviewing and claiming for oneself God's promises and blessings. In other words, Lord, you said if we did this, you would do that. Lord, you said you would always be with us and so on and so forth. That's prayers of confirmation, prayers of protection and mercy, a request for personal help and protection in the face of difficulty or danger. Now, I've, I've named five different types of prayer language that was used in ten verses of Scripture. 
imagine. The point I want you to understand here is this is God's language of communication. Not long or flowery words or even quoting scripture. The language of worship, the language of communication with God is praise, is mercy, is supplication, is request, is confession, is confirmation, is remembrance. This is what God hears. This is what God answers. Not bands or instruments or big crowds or little crowds. Not just men praying, but men praying and actually communicating with God using the language of worship. So the essence of worship is communication. And God has shown us in his revealed word that there is a particular language that he hears and responds to. Next slide. If our worship has not been satisfying spiritually, it may be that we're not trying to communicate or we may not be using the right language. I, I don't have time to say everything I want to say in one lesson. That's why I have four lessons. <laughs> so there's no poem here at the end of this one and there's no three things you ought to do. We're just going to pinch it off right here, hold that information. Tomorrow we'll have another great session with Keith, and I will continue uh, with my, with my uh, lesson. Tomorrow, the practice of biblical worship is submission. Think about that tonight as we uh, prepare for tomorrow's wonderful day. Brother Jay, I give it back to you, sir. So... Uh Thank you, Mike.